You are listening to National Security Law Today. I'm not Jumping Jack Flash. And I was not born in a crossfire hurricane or drowned or washed up and left for dead. But there is a certain metaphor we're deploying tonight on NSL Today. Because it's all right now for Jim Baker. In fact, it's a gas. He's got the staying power to rival that of Mick Jagger. And we're glad for that since he's described by his friends and subordinates as humble, thoughtful, and decent. This is National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm Nicole. And I'm Elisa. And I'm Yvette. You probably read the headlines, but not the full report if you're being honest with yourself. Which is not a good look for a lawyer. We know you want to fix that. So we're here to bring you the real man and lawyer behind some of the biggest decisions of the last two and a half decades in American history. Jim Baker was the general counsel of the FBI under Director James Comey. And long before that, he served several presidents and AGs, meaning attorney generals, and not just as a yes man, but as a genuine advisor. So, Jim, we're really glad you made it tonight. Welcome. I'm so glad to be here. That that introduction and referencing me in connection with Mick Jagger is like my mind is blown. So <laughs> I don't even know where we're going to go today, but uh, I'm so glad, so glad to be with you. We aim to please. So, Jim, you went to Notre Dame and Michigan Law School, and you came to the Department of Justice in the Honors Program. Then five years later, you went to DOJ's FISA shop, and that was two years before the East Africa bombings. Can you tell us what work was like at that time um, when you started, and how did the threat topography change over time? Sure. So, uh, again, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So, in yeah, I went to the Office of Intelligence Policy and Review, OIPR, which does no long, which no longer exists. It's now been it's like two merged. guys in a chair, right? Uh, it was about when I got there in 1996. There were it was. The whole office had around 20 people, uh, more or less, including the, the supervisors. And so there were about seven or eight of us that worked on uh, FISA applications, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act applications. I was a line attorney. I had come from the criminal division of the Department of Justice. So when I joined DOJ through the honors program, I came in um, to the criminal division. I was a fraud prosecutor for several years. And when I was thinking about leaving that job, I was looking around trying to figure out what I wanted to do, trying to figure out what was interesting, found OIPR. I had many uh, mentors in the criminal division tell me this was like not the best career move. They, uh, let's see, what they said it was a, uh, one one comment was, it's not a disaster. <laughs> it's sort of that. Uh, it, was wow. de- it was deemed as beneath me, a dead end, that the managers there were never going to move and you would never advance and why are you doing this? And you'll, it's, it's so isolated, you'll never have contact with any defense attorneys. So if you ever intend to work for a law firm, this is a bad move. Nobody's ever heard of this statute, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, FISA. And so it's just like a bad idea. So, uh, But I did it anyway because one of the downsides of working in the criminal division, in a litigating uh, unit, is that you have to travel a lot. All and so, the time, right? All the time, You're right? always and on the so road. I was tired of that, and I did it anyway. So, uh, okay, so when I got there, so it was very different. You were trying to establish a work-life balance? Because you know what? That's a question we often ask our female attorneys, but it sounds like it's important to you, too. It was important to me at that time because I had two kids at that p- at time, two young kids, and I didn't want to travel anymore. And I, st- I still wanted to do something interesting, and I wanted to do work with people that I liked and wanted to be around. And so 
there was a person named Jim McAdams who was the counsel for intelligence policy, the head of the office at the time. Jim and I had worked together in the criminal division on the uh, prosecution of Manuel Noriega, so I knew him. Uh, I liked small him quite matter a bit. In yeah, history, right, right? Exactly. <laughs> I was the lowest level munchkin on that on that case, uh, dealing with class doing doing work on classified information, classified discovery. But it was. I thought the world of Jim, and so the opportunity to work with him was great, and I just disregarded all of this advice that I was receiving. It's not that I didn't say – I didn't think that it was bad advice. It probably was all true, but I just tried to figure out what uh, my options were at that time, and this seemed like a better thing to do. So I, I, I you know, sort of took a detour and decided to do this, and um, it turned out not to be what they – what my mentors thought it was going to be. Sounds like you landed on your feet pretty well. I landed on my feet, yes, uh, and it was it was a great office to be in, a great team that we had, very small. And then there was uh, a change in management, and Jim left, and there was a bunch of changes that took place. And by 1998, I ended up as the deputy counsel for intelligence operations, which meant that I was in charge of all of the the FISA operations, the intelligence oversight of the operations of the FBI. Um, at that time, I think I was, what, 37 years old. Wow. And so what did it look like back then? What were the principal threats? What was the landscape like? And, uh, um, you know, there were these massive things sort of percolating, right? Al-Qaeda was really flowering and, and sort of finding its way. And what were you dealing with at that time? Yeah, so the the mix of things was both similar and different to what it is today. So, yes, we were dealing with counterterrorism threats. Yes, we were dealing with counterintelligence threats. Some of the adversaries have been very persistent over time, especially the nation states. Um, the terrorist groups have changed, especially as you referenced uh, the East Africa embassy bombings. That really was a watershed moment for all of us because it just changed – I mean, the, the direct attack on U.S. interests and the number of people killed and the devastation and the desire by the FBI and the Justice Department to address and, and thwart any potential uh, threats inside the United States that might be coming after that really became much more paramount than I think it had been before. And so the volume of the application started to increase, the focus on al-Qaeda uh, was different. And then, so that we had that in 1998. Then at the end of 1999 into 2000, we had a big crisis that's been referred to as the Millennium Crisis, where we were worried that Al Qaeda, in fact, was plotting an attack on the United States at the time of the Millennium. So that involved a su substantial ramp up in intelligence operations. Then in 2000, we had the attack on the USS Cole. That was sort of more of the same in a certain way. It was a different type of attack but also required us to be uh, quite aggressive in dealing with it. And then, of course, we had 9-11. Wow. And let's talk about 2004, going ahead a couple years, the so-called Warrantless Surveillance Program. What was that? So the Warrantless Surveillance Program has many names. That's been the, the President Bush called it the Terrorist Surveillance Program. The code name for it at the time, uh, which is now unclassified, which I still get nervous every time I say it, um, <laughs> just instinctively, it's called Stellar Wind. And so this was a three-part program designed by NSA in coordination with the White House and to some extent the Justice Department, and I can come back to that, to, as President Bush said, if someone in the United States was speaking to al-Qaeda overseas, he wanted to know about it. And so to do that, they came up with, as I say, a three-part program two of which were involved with collecting metadata to try to identify any al-Qaeda operatives in the United States. There was Internet metadata as well as uh, 
telephony metadata, and then there was a third part that involved the collection of content of communications, both telephone and uh, and internet communications. And so they were all intended. I, th- I think a reasonable way to think about it is they were intended as a as an early warning system to try to detect whether there was another set of Al Qaeda operatives in the United States at that time, and the idea being that if anything was detected, leads or tips, if you will, would be sent to the FBI to try to deal with them domestically. I'd love to know, you know, what what your thoughts are, uh, having been there in the wake of 9-11 when, you know, when fevers were high, when people were very anxious, um, to now where we can be a little bit more sober about it. How did you feel about some of the classified legal um, interpretations of the law and how Congress reacted when the Snowden leaks happened? Well, yeah, so there's a lot packed in there. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the, 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 the landscape has changed substantially over time in how people think about the threat. It's been a long time since 9-11. And um, the, the sense of the threat is, is different, I think, from that kind of violent attack on the United States. The United States still faces major, major threats, especially in the cybersecurity area, and, and we can talk about those. But, uh, you know, the threat from terrorist groups, I mean, we substantially – well, you know, the United States went to war in order to respond to what al-Qaeda had done in 9-11. That was the nation's response. And we went to war in a full-throated way using all of our national power – military forces, diplomatic, intelligence, economic, and so on. And, you know, the stellar wind and the activities that we did under FISA at the same time were intended to protect the United States in, uh, in a war. And I know that makes a lot of people uncomfortable still to think about it that way, but that is what happened. Um, and uh, that's how the United States approached it at multiple levels. So, um, so, you know, today I think the, the what, one of the biggest changes over all those years has been, well, it's both the nature and scope of the threat, but it's also the way in which surveillance is conducted. And as everybody knows, I mean, that just the explosion of the uh, variety of the uh, variety, velocity, and volume, as General Hayden sometimes says, uh, of the communications that exist today electronically in the digital ecosystem in which we all live. And so that, trying to keep up with all of those advances and try to figure out how to conduct surveillance in a lawful way to protect the privacy of Americans and also uh, protect the security of, of Americans is extremely challenging. Well, I guess going back for just a second, though, there was a point when the Warrantless Surveillance Act, Stellar Winds, um, I mean, first of all, was it entirely warrantless? Was it entirely without review? It wasn't without review. It was warrantless at the start in the sense that it did not go to a court. So that the president was authorizing it. The theories changed uh, admittedly over time, but the president was authorizing it under some combination of his Article II authority as well as the uh, authorization for the use of military force that Congress passed in 2001 right after the 9-11 attacks. So he was authorizing this collection of metadata and the content of communications uh, by NSA without prior court authorization or even or after the fact court authorization. So there was no warrant. There was no court, author, court authorization. That changed over time, and there was a transition over the years starting in 2004. I think it was then 2006 and 2007. By the end of – or by the middle, I guess, of 2007, all of these authorities had shifted to FISA court authorities. So the court was then – 
reviewing and approving all of these uh, all these three parts of the program. Wow, but you know, I, I guess the question is, it, it, it ended in a dramatically um, described way with Ashcroft in his hospital bed. So, yeah, we're, I f- mean, what what happened there? <laughs> yeah, so I was not literally in the hospital room at the time, but I was involved with the whole controversy that led up to that. So the basic idea was that DOJ, the, the Attorney General, Attorney, Attorney General Ashcroft had approved the had approved the program with respect to its uh, lawfulness in, I think it was October of 2001. And then uh, and he was basing his opinion on advice that he had received from John Yu, who was then a Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Office of Legal Counsel, who handled all the national security matters for DOJ. And so John left at some point, I think it was in 2003. A new group of folks came in, uh, Jack Goldsmith, Patrick Philbin, and they started to, to conduct a review of the program and found that there were factual and legal problems with it and that it had to be reviewed and that they couldn't, at the end of the day, they couldn't find a lawful basis to support one part of the program. And so, okay. and so therefore, it became a crisis because DOJ then uh, could not Reapprove it. The, the program had to be re- re- reapproved every, I think it was thirty-five, every thirty to forty-five days, something like that. So when this thing was coming up for renewal, it was sent over to DOJ. DOJ said we can't approve it, and DOJ at that time was Jim Comey because John Ashcroft had been stricken by uh, an illness and was in the hospital at George Washington University Hospital. And so, um, yeah, when the White House found out about the um, the Justice Department, Jim Comey's concerns about it. Uh, Alberto Gonzalez, who at that time was the uh, White House counsel, and Andy Card, who was the chief of staff, went to the hospital to try to persuade Attorney General Ashcroft to approve it, and he declined in very dramatic terms uh, to do that. (laughs) And he said it doesn't matter anyway because he, Jim Comey, is the attorney general because I'm sick and I'm not the attorney general now. He's the acting attorney general. And so you have to listen to him. And Comey was not prepared to do that. That led to a crisis where most of the leadership of the department and the FBI was prepared to resign over this if the president didn't back down. But then uh, the president, after a conversation with Bob Mueller, uh, asked everybody to pull their uh, get their heads together and see if there's a way to, to uh, resolve this. And so that's what everybody did. And we were successful in, in doing that and moving part of the program over to FISA court, court authorization. So how did you solve that? Was it paper, scissors, rock? It was through one of the most agonizing uh, periods of time as a lawyer that I've ever had because we were trying to uh, we were trying to use the statute in a way that we thought was lawful and constitutional and to provide protection for the security and uh, constitutional rights of Americans and deal with a range of technological issues that had to be described and addressed and also make sure that the legal positions that we were taking didn't mess up any other ongoing programs. And so it was this very, very complicated three-dimensional chess that we were trying to do under very pressurized circumstances because the the surveillance had to be curtailed during this period of time while we were... um, doing what we were doing, and the 
you know, the concern from the White House was that while all this is going on, the American people are exposed because we don't have as much coverage as we should, electronic surveillance coverage. And so there was a heck of a lot of stress on all of us to try to come up with something quickly, but to do it well. Wow. Can I ask how you felt about the Snowden leaks that kind of brought all of this into the public fore? I'm sure on one hand you were concerned with the um, disclosure of these highly classified um, um, processes, but on the other hand, uh, it hadn't been debated openly, and members of Congress who um, who authored the Patriot Act said that they didn't imagine that the administration would interpret um, the the statute in the way that it ultimately was in order to to establish those classified programs. So, can you just tell tell us how you felt about it? Sure. Well, so when I first heard about it, I was dismayed. And the more I learned about it, I just thought that this if Mr. Snowden had concerns about how this surveillance was being conducted, this was not the way to go about uh, raising his concerns, that there were numerous ways through inspectors general, through Congress, uh, in particular through the chain of command, that he could have raised concerns if he thought that the Constitution and laws of the United States were being violated. So I, I just didn't think that making it public uh, was the right thing to do in terms of protecting very sensitive sources and methods. So I thought it was just the wrong thing to do. Having said that, I do recognize and acknowledge that you know the government as a whole should have done a better job of being more transparent with the American people. I think, I guess I disagree that Congress didn't really understand what it was doing. I think they did based on some, some of the things that were, had, had been filed by the Justice Department with Congress. that's People will argue about that. I know that. But um, clearly the American people did not know what was going on. But at the same time, you know, President Bush had said right at the outset after 9-11, like, look, we're going to do things very aggressively here, and we're going to do things I can't tell you about. And they're going to be the intelligence world, and I'm going to do what I can to protect you. And so – uh, you know, he did say that. He said words to that effect, and this is this was one of the uh, this was one of the outcomes of it. And we had moved it all under the FISA court at that point in time, so all three branches of government had approved it. In in other words, it was pursuant to a statute so that Congress had enacted. Uh, the executive branch obviously was doing it, and then we brought it to a court also that Congress had created, and the court had approved it in numerous instances. So. Uh, but in any event, given the number of years that had passed since 9-11, clearly the government had to, should have done a better job of being more transparent and explaining to the American people what it was doing on their, beha- on their behalf in order to protect them. And just for the young lawyers out there, I know it's, it's stunning to think, but there are probably some people in law school who were not around, at least not sentient <laughs> at the time of 9-11. Can you just tell us what the FISA court does and... Um, what some of the controversies are around the way the court operates? The FISA court has been controversial for a long period of time. Uh, it is the court established by Congress in the Foreign, Intelli- Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, FISA, that consists of sitting regular district court judges from around the country. There are 11 of them now. And they come in and they hear wiretap applications that the government files, wiretap applications and search applications and other related collection activities, applications for uh, collection activities that the government files. And it reviews them and makes sure that the collection is consistent with the Constitution and laws of the United States as well as applicable court orders. 
And so it is a crime for the government to conduct electronic surveillance or do certain searches uh, within the United States except as authorized by statute. And so uh, the government has to file these applications if it wants to do this type of collection. And so that's, that's what it does. And, and so the office that I used to work at prepared all these applications uh, to go to the court. So the court has been described by various people as uh, an uh, obnoxious court, obnoxious in the sense of uh, it's an infringement on the president's Article II authorities and should not be there. It's also been described as a rubber stamp. That's completely false. It's not, in my experience, and we can talk about that if you want. I've referred to it as a national treasure, and that's how I think of it and how it should be treated. And that is in part why I was so dismayed by the recent Inspector General report about the mistakes, omissions uh, that the FBI uh, had engaged in with respect to applications to the court. And so that was very distressing to me because I, I, I view the court and the, and the FISA process as so critical to the security and uh, privacy of Americans. Well, part of the criticism about it being a rubber stamp is because it's not an adversarial process the way that, you know, Americans traditionally understand courts. There isn't an, uh, a, a, a lawyer on the other side arguing against the government saying, well, this wire, this uh, surveillance shouldn't be authorized. It's basically the government making a presentation to the court and the court saying, well, this is acceptable. And the reason that the Carter Page situation was so troubling was because if the system relies on the um, presentation by the government to be complete and thorough and truthful. Uh, it, and I'm trying to just state the controversy. Yeah, no, absolutely. It, it, it does rely on that. And I can't and won't defend the mistakes and omissions that occurred. I'm just not going to do that. Um, but, I mean, the, the thing to think, a thing to think about is well, when the government seeks a wiretap or a search warrant in a criminal context, there's nobody on the other side either. Now, of course, when uh, the case goes to trial, then the defendant has access to the affidavits, the applications, and so on in a, a criminal context, either the wiretap or the search warrant. So they get to see more. They are not uh, allowed to see, generally speaking, it hasn't happened uh, they're not allowed to see the affidavit applications and, and so on with respect to FISA applications. So the Carter Page applications that have come out, even though they have redactions, are really the first time that the public has had a, a close look at what an application what an application actually looks like. And the distinction, there's a separate distinction as well, which is under the wiretap statute, a notice would be given to anyone, basically, who's intercepted in the wiretap. Once it's over. Uh, yeah. Once it's over with and once it's done. So even if the case never comes to trial, those notices go out. And people are at least aware of the fact that somehow, some way, they've been intercepted. Right. I mean, Congress, in FISA, Congress was trying to deal with a situation where the government clearly had abused national security authorities prior to the 1970s. And we're talking about the Church and Pike Commission yes, hearings all, that exposed Yes, exactly. All there of a number of abuses things. came out. Yes, a number of abuses came out and were disclosed in, in the 1970s in the Church and Pike Committee hearings. And so Congress was trying to deal with that and also recognize that the president had uh, authority under Article II to do certain types of surveillances and then also reconcile that with the Fourth Amendment. And classified and, information. And classified the information. The protections of sources and methods and all the things that we're concerned about and also eliminate the possibilities uh, that these things were happening in some sort of star chamber, that they were actually federal judges who had been sworn. 
Exactly. Well, so if you read, you know, if you look at the FISA statute when it was first enacted and you read the legislative history, it was a very well thought out and elegant solution to a lot of these problems and worked for a long time. For a long time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Three decades. All right. And now to go back to 2008, why did you decide to leave DOJ for the first time when you did? So uh, I actually I'm thinking actually I think it was 2007. So by uh, the end of 2006 and into 2007, uh, you know I had been the head of the Office of Intelligence Policy and Review by that time for a number of years post but before 9/11 it started actually, and uh, so I was exhausted. That was number one. Number two was by that point in time the National Security Division had come into existence. I was one of the people that helped create it, figure out how it was going to work, and then uh, helped get it started. And then they confirmed uh, Ken Weinstein as the first uh, assistant attorney general, and then he brought in his team. And so we had substantially more resources to deal with all the issues that needed to be dealt with. And so it just seemed like the right time to step back and take a break. And I thought that it was in the interest of the country for me to step back, even though I had a lot of experience and had worked on a lot of different uh, crazy issues over those years, um, I was also tired. And I thought that my staying sort of on the front line any longer was not in the best interest of the country. So I stepped back. And then I went and did a fellowship uh, at the Kennedy School and started teaching national security law at Harvard Law School back then. So, And I've been doing that ever since. It's my favorite thing about this interview that Going to teach at Harvard Law School is a step back, but you know we'll power through that. Jim. It was it was it was, wow. it was my first layers my, and layers and layers, right? My first teaching job, and I was like totally stressed out. Uh, of course, when I got up there, you don't exactly run from stress. I've noticed. Seems not you run yeah. to stress. This is the end of part one of our conversation with Jim Baker. Join us again next week for part two, where we discuss more about his career in the Department of Justice and Operation Crossfire Hurricane. And we do have a legal disclaimer. The attorneys hosting this podcast are here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or firm. You can always find links to the Black Letter Law and articles on today's topic at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity and in the notes to this podcast. You can also find information on an upcoming luncheon with Jason Klatenik, the General Counsel of the Office of the Director of National Intelligence that the Standing Committee on Law and National Security is hosting on February 5th in downtown D.C. Be sure to check that out. Hit subscribe button on your podcast listening app of choice. Drop us a note at NationalSecurity at AmericanBar.org or follow us on Twitter at ABA NatSec. Thank you for listening. We welcome your feedback. And we'll see you next week. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.